What's going on? It's Joey Thurman, and welcome to Season 3 of the Fad or Future Podcast. Yeah, I made it three seasons. What's different about this season? Well, yes, I'm still bringing you the world's top experts in fitness, nutrition, mental health, and more. But I'm also talking about my own personal struggles. I get deeper this season because we can all use a little bit of relatability. So I hope you stick with me, you enjoy this season, and thank you for being here. And as always, you get to decide, is it a fad or is it a future? Because after all, we don't want to be fatties, F-A-D-D-Y. Hashtag don't be a fatty. Low carbohydrates are the only way to go for your health. Or maybe they're not. Now, today on the podcast, I have Cyrus Kambada, PhD, and Robbie Barbaro, MPH, the authors of Mastering Diabetes. They both were diagnosed with diabetes earlier in their life, and they found that eating a plant-based, high-carbohydrate, and low-fat diet not only helped them, but helped hundreds of thousands of people. That's why they run Mastering Diabetes. They wrote the book on it quite literally. This is a highly entertaining podcast. We talk about diabetes, eating well for your health and feet. What? <laughs> yes. It takes a turn, but we always go back to it. No small feats. So well, once again, thanks for listening to the podcast. Please, if you're listening on iTunes or anywhere else, subscribe, review, share the podcast. I would truly appreciate it. Make sure you follow me on all social media platforms at Joey Thurman Fit and on Instagram at the Fad or Future Podcast. I truly appreciate the support. And here's my conversation with Cyrus and Robbie. Cheers and be well. Paleo, carnivore, cookie diets. What the hell else? I mean, there's like a thousand of these things out here right now. And now I got Cyrus and Robbie in front of me. Robbie just showed me his feet. Cyrus <laughs> had a foot story. No, this is nothing about feet. So if you tuned into some sort of strange podcast talking about feet, this is not it. The fellows who wrote Mastering Diabetes, thanks for coming on Fatter Future Podcast. Joey, you're a stud. We appreciate uh, the invitation, so we're glad to be here. Yeah, I, I have to explain how that came up because we were acknowledging your amazing skill as a barefoot training specialist, which is a legit thing. It's and a, I have some, some spacers between my toes, which is something that could be useful for uh -huh. some of your listeners. I mean, how many podcasts do you think you have done? We've done well over 100. Okay. So what was that the best intro ever? It, it doesn't no get question. any more. <laughs> no question. <laughs> it doesn't get any better. I'm totally into it. And, and Cyrus was my 559th subscriber to my YouTube channel. So that's right. I was 560. <laughs> I like to, I want to say that like when you, when you blow up and become even more popular than you already are, just don't forget about me. All right. I'm just going to hold up a number like 559. Just so I, you always remember. I won't that. forget about you. I think I'm going back on Kelly and Ryan in July. So I'll make sure I tell them about my 559 subscriber and maybe i'll tell him about robbie <laughs> oh that's right just drop my name somewhere i'll be totally happy that's, <laughs> oh, that's great that works all right, all, right, all right fellas mastering diabetes now what in the hell is that because you you talk about four or five was almost six different types of diabetes i i just thought there was two most people think there's two and mm -hmm. and you go over you know, type one type one and a half and gestational pre-diabetes there, there's a whole plethora of them so one, just skim over. Uh, I don't know who wants to take this. Sure. How many diabetes types there are? Uh, yeah. Why quantify those? And then we'll get into it. Okay, cool. So there, yeah, I mean, back in the day, 
historically there've only been sort of like two types of diabetes that like the world has really cared about. But in reality, just like you said, there's now six type one, type 1.5 pre-diabetes, type two diabetes, gestational diabetes, and now type three diabetes, which is considered Alzheimer's disease or vascular dementia. Wow. Okay. So it's think about it as type three is basically diabetes of your brain. So let's start at the beginning. Type one and type 1.5 diabetes are autoimmune versions of diabetes. They're autoimmune flavors. Okay. So you don't, you don't do something to yourself that, um, you know, it's not a lifestyle related condition. You develop it because, uh, there's some combination of, um, of genetic, um, a pre predetermination. Plus, in addition to that, there's also things that are in your food, things that are in your environment that could increase your risk for manifesting this, you know, autoimmune condition. So when type one or 1.5 sets in, what you recognize is that your blood glucose goes really high all of a sudden. And uh, the reason is because the beta cells in your pancreas, which are responsible for secreting insulin, they just stop working, right? So they've actually been on like a progressive decline over the course of time. But your, you know, your pancreas, your liver, your brain do a fantastic job of masking as many symptoms as possible until you get to this breaking point where all of a sudden, boom, your pancreas is like, Hey, listen, I'm trying to crank out insulin. I can't do it anymore. I'm out. And then as a result of that, your blood glucose goes very high, like 400, 500, 600. And you usually go to the doctor, you go to the hospital, and then you're diagnosed with a, a, a life-threatening condition at that moment. Right. Okay. So the difference between type one and 1.5 is that 1.5 sets in when you're older, usually over the age of 30. Type one sets in at the age of, it could either be one years old all the way up to 30 years old. And uh, type 1.5 tends to be a slower progressing version. So if I think of it as adult onset, slow progressing type one diabetes, that's okay. really the sort of difference, okay? Pre-diabetes, type two gestational diabetes, there are three different flavors. So pre-diabetes, is what happens when you first develop insulin resistance, which we can go into a lot of detail about today. Okay? Yeah. So you first become insulin resistant, that becomes prediabetes. And then if you don't correct prediabetes, it can then turn into type two diabetes. Okay, so it's sort of like a, it's a progression from one to the next to the next. Gestational diabetes is also caused by insulin resistance. Hmm. So insulin resistance is sort of like the thing that the underlying condition that can set into, uh, into motion a, a series of dominoes that all lead to you know, a similar outcome, which is high blood glucose, generally high cholesterol levels. Um, some people manifest with you know, excess body weight and it can become a real problem because it's sort of like the gateway to many chronic diseases. Yeah. And then the final one is um, type three diabetes, like I'd mentioned at the beginning. So type three diabetes is um, is, is what is considered to be insulin resistance of your brain. So insulin resistance is generally considered to affect your liver and your muscle in your, in your peripheral body. But when insulin resistance affects your brain, which it absolutely can, then you can end up developing the symptoms of cognitive decline and cognitive decline can manifest itself into either, uh, Alzheimer's disease or some version of dementia. And so when you sort of are on that path towards dementia and or Alzheimer's disease, then you are manifesting the symptoms of insulin resistance of your brain, which is now being considered type three diabetes. The beauty is that all of the versions of diabetes with the exception of type one and 1.5 are actually for the most part reversible. Okay. Wow. So if you treat insulin resistance, the underlying condition, you can resolve the symptomology of prediabetes and two type two diabetes. You can reverse both of those conditions, you can reverse gestational diabetes and you can dramatically reduce the severity of Alzheimer's disease at the same time. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty interesting story that can get complex real quickly.
Yeah, I mean, I think people really try to overcomplicate things and we definitely want to get into that, but you both have personal stories and you're not just, you didn't write Mastering Diabetes to make a quick buck. You have a tie to this, correct? Right. Robbie, what's your Yeah. Time? So, I mean, we we're both living with type one diabetes. I was diagnosed when I was 12, just about to turn 13. So that was in 2000. So I've been living with it for over 20 years now. And my older brother was actually diagnosed prior to me. So hmm. I ended up self-diagnosing myself. I told my mom, look, I'm thirsty all the time. I'm going to the bathroom all the time. I think I have diabetes just like Steve. She said, no, 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 don't be silly. You don't have diabetes. I said, okay, fine. Eventually she was out of town. She called to check in and said, Hey, like what's going on? Uh, like, well, I couldn't sleep last night. I'm cramping. She said, okay, go upstairs, use your brother's blood glucose meter and test yourself. I was well over 400. You're supposed to be somewhere between 70 and, and 120. And my brother said, yep, you have type one diabetes, pack your bag. You're going to be in the hospital for a few nights. I said, okay. And we go to the doctor, the general doctor, they run some tests. Then they send me to the hospital. And I just remember my dad coming back from their trip at that point and saying, look, it's just an inconvenience. You can still have all your dreams come true and live a great life. So just take care of yourself. And at that point, my family was following the standard American diet and we were living in Minnesota. They wanted to make sure I had the best medical care you can possibly have. So we went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester wow. and I had a whole team there. I had an endocrinologist, I had a nutritionist, I had a psychologist, not a single person ever said anything about using nutrition to number one, maximize my insulin sensitivity, and number two, reduce my long-term chronic disease risk, which is higher living with any form of diabetes. So I continued to just follow their guidance, follow the standard American diet. Their number one thing was just keep being yourself. You know, just, we want, we want you to be normal, be like your friends, just inject enough insulin. That's all you gotta do. That was the core teaching point. There was totally the typical food pyramid you know, have a serving of fruit, have all, you know, have all the variety of these foods. And my fruit at that time was mandarin oranges. My mom would give me a, a cup. That's <laughs> like high fructose corn syrup. We had to have that with my dinner. And she was just following the direction that she was given from the Mayo Clinic. Right. Um, and so that was the beginning of life with type one diabetes. And I continued to learn more and more on my own. And long story short, I was in high school. I was at Barnes and Noble looking for some spark notes as you do uh, as a high school student. And there's this book called Kevin Trudeau's Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About. Okay, I'm sure somebody listening knows about this guy, knows about the infomercials. There might <laughs> be one person. Him? Yeah, I think there's one person in here. <laughs> um, I'm not recommending this book. That guy went to jail. Um, there was some deception <laughs> with his work. But the bottom line is that book planted a seed in my mind that maybe it's possible to reverse type one diabetes. If I do anything and everything I can possibly think of to allow my body to regenerate, that was, that's the mission. That's how I got into this whole thing. It's funny in the book writing process, you know, Cyrus and I have our stories in there. I was titled the seeker. I think titles Cyrus is like the PhD nerd or something. But what's your exact yeah. title? Yeah, I think so. No, I was, I was looking actually have the book right here. Um, <laughs> I, I was looking at, yeah, Cyrus, you're, you're something about the nerd. Yeah. Like the, the, the the biology super nerd or something. Yeah, we're, we're, yeah. we're going to figure that out before the show's over. But anyways, yeah. mine was a seeker. And that's true for me. Like I've always been like a truth seeker, just like trying to figure this out, get to the bottom of it. And through this journey, uh, I don't have a solution to reversing type 1 diabetes. Just like Cyrus was saying earlier, we don't have that solution. Yeah. But 
along the way, I learned a lot. And I tried many different approaches. I tried a Weston A. Price Foundation diet where I'm eating like grass-fed beef. I'm eating raw like milk. You have to go to the, um, the farmer's market. This was in Sarasota, Florida, Jessica's stand. I would go and buy milk for cats because they couldn't sell milk for humans. And that was the raw milk that I was consuming. Again, just following the Weston A. Price guidelines. I, everything I do, man, I do it to a T, Joey. I, um, I can see that with your toes too. <laughs> see, there you go. <laughs> brought it back. Um, brought it. <laughs> I'm going to say it at least one more time during this podcast. You don't know when it's coming. All right, carry on. <laughs> <laughs> it's classic. Keep you um, on your toes. <laughs> yeah. Good one, Cyrus. Ooh, nice. um, so anyways, I did that. And then again, so everything I was doing, okay, what can I do to give my body the most you know, nutrition, like what's the best nutrition for my body to begin healing itself. And like, let's regenerate some beta cells. Like, why not? Um, I wish there was a simple answer to that question, but that's, that's for another podcast. Yeah. Um, so I keep on trying new things end up trying a plant-based ketogenic diet. So this is where I'm eating, uh, lots of nuts and seeds, lots of celery dipped in almond butter. I was loving cashews, um, plenty of oil on salads but really keeping that carbohydrate content very low, no more than 30 grams of carbohydrate per day um, of net carbohydrate there. So you could have the fiber. You can go up to like, you know, 90 grams if you're including fiber. But um, the point is I did that diet and I experienced, and we'll talk about this in detail today because I think it's really important, but I personally experienced my total insulin intake went down. The total number of quantity of insulin I had to inject went down, all right? But and my mindset at the time was, okay, I'm trying to reverse type one diabetes. My goal is to take less and less insulin until I get to the point where I'm not taking any. That's my goal as this type one reversal process. Yeah. And that would make sense. That would be exciting if you knew that simultaneously your pancreas was beginning to produce more of its own insulin. Mm. But that wasn't the case. Okay. So I'm just, I'm literally avoiding carbohydrate rich foods to try and reduce my insulin thinking I'm improving my health. But what I know now is that I was eating myself into a state of glucose intolerance, hmm. eating myself into a state of insulin resistance. So if you do the math, it would take one unit of insulin for every one gram of carbohydrate consumed. That was my ratio. And now I switched to a low fat plant-based whole food diet. I'm eating well over 700 grams of carbohydrate per day. I'm injecting a physiologically normal amount of insulin, about 27 units per day. And now my glucose to insulin ratio is 10 to one. So that is a 900% improvement in insulin sensitivity. And I'm again, using a physiologically normal amount of insulin. So through this process of seeing my insulin sensitivity improve, I also had plantar fasciitis talking about feet here, Joey, that went away, changing my diet. I didn't hit that one. It was on a T. I let, I let that go. <laughs> okay. I, I had really terrible cystic acne. That was frustrating. I had chronic allergies. I took Nasonex, Claritin D year round. And all that stuff went away when I switched my diet. Wow. So to me, it's, it's been a lot of fun to be able to eat foods that I love. I love eating fruit. I love being active. And again, to use a physiologically normal amount of insulin. For us living with type 1 diabetes, we are these amazing test subjects for insulin sensitivity. We monitor our blood glucose on a regular basis. We know exactly how much insulin we're using. And we're monitoring our carbohydrate intake. Those three pieces of information can really help us paint a picture of insulin sensitivity on a meal by meal basis. Wow. You, you don't know how much insulin your pancreas is producing. You could test your blood glucose, you can count your carbohydrates, yeah. but there's no way for you to truly quantify 
that insulin sensitivity on a meal by meal basis. So that's been fun for us personally. It's been fun for all the clients we're working with. And it's just been, uh, it's been a great, a great journey to really um, teach people that, look, you can eat carbohydrate rich foods living with any form of diabetes. And the impact is, uh, is a heck of a lot better health. And uh, you can have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that more. And I, I actually have a, a continuous glucose monitor that was sent to me for free because everybody listening, I get free things for being an influencer. How about that? <laughs> um, wow. Pulled the curtain back on that one. <laughs> this thing here. Uh, I think it's who's, that, who's that from? Levels, I think. Yeah. I know, I know, so I, I need to do, do that because as part of the podcast, I try out all sorts of different things since I'm a human guinea pig. But um, levels, no, I don't get paid by you guys, but I will stick that thing in my arm and I will, I will check some stuff out after this sure. podcast. Cyrus, what's your story, man? Okay. So I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 22. So I was basically like finishing my senior year of college. I was at Stanford University and I was just like trying to move on with my life and just kind of do something different other than college. Stanford, was, is, that a, is that a good school? Like no, it's like community college. You okay. might have heard of it. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's in Alabama. Yeah. All right. So, uh, we, so basically I'm 22 years old and uh, I just noticed that like I was, I mean, I had never been that thirsty before. Like I'm a thirsty dude and I, I like to drink water and like I'm an athlete and then whatever, like drinking water is just part of the game. And this is before people said like you're thirsty. This was, this is a different thirsty. This <laughs> is a different thirsty. <laughs> you, you had no idea what to expect during this podcast. I swear I'm not drunk. I didn't do any drugs, but like, let's lighten some shit up here. All right. So you're totally, totally. All right. So, so here I am like trying to study for finals. And I was like, man, drink, you know, drink a glass of water. And then I was like three, literally three seconds later, I was like, okay, I'm thirstier. And then I would drink more. And then I was like, okay, I'm thirstier. So I picked up the phone and called my sister and I was like, uh, could you explain to me what's happening right now? Because I'm drinking about a gallon of water per day. Uh, I feel really low energy and I'm urinating literally every 30 minutes, like clockwork throughout the day. And then when I would go to sleep, uh, I would cramp up. So, you know, that feeling when you're like sleeping and all of a sudden your calf cramps and you wake up and you're just like, Oh God, it's like incredibly intense pain. Right. So I would try and relax. I that try calf to tell my muscle. wife to get off my leg. Like, come on, this is not comfortable. <laughs> yeah, totally. And what would end up happening was that uh, my, I had like a, a severe cramp in my, like my right leg. And then I would try and relax the tension there. And then it would cause a, a cramp in my left hamstring, which would then cause a cramp in my right butt cheek. And then all of a sudden my shoulder cramped and my abdomen cramped. And there, I, I kid you not, there were a couple of day, nights where I was just lying in bed in what felt like full body rigor mortis. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. I don't understand what's causing this. This is too much. So uh, I, when I called my sister, I was like, hey, what's going on? She's a doctor of osteopathy. She's, a, she's an MD, or I'm sorry, a DO. And she was basically like, hey, um, you're expressing, you have type 1 diabetes, go straight to the health clinic right now. So I show up at the health clinic 30 minutes later. They test my blood glucose. The, the, the nurse takes a look at me. She goes, how did you get here? And I was like, I think I walked, but I'm not 100% certain. And she's like, we have to get you to the ER right now. And I was like, could somebody please explain to me what the heck is going on? Right. And she's like, your blood glucose is in the 600s. It's six times higher than it's supposed to be. You're in a condition called DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. Wow. Uh, this is a life-threatening condition. We got to get insulin into you right now. Uh, we got to go to the hospital. So they took me to the hospital. I show up at the hospital 24 hours later. I'm oh, sorry. I was in the hospital for 24 hours sure. in the hospital. They're like, oh, hey, Cyrus, by the way, yes, you have type one diabetes. They start giving me 
insulin in one arm, saline in the other arm to rehydrate me to actually get some fluid back into me. And uh, they're like, by the way, you also have two other autoimmune conditions. And I was like, awesome. Greatest news I've heard in a long time. What are they? And they're like, in addition to type one diabetes, you also have Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Uh, and you have a thing called alopecia universalis. And I was like, these are big words. What is this? And they were, they were like, the reason why you are losing your hair, because it was falling out at that time, is because you have an autoimmune condition called alopecia, which is going to make you completely bald. And I was like, awesome. What else? Right. <laughs> and uh, they were like, we've never seen, we've literally never seen anybody with this combination of autoimmune diseases before. This is the first time we've ever seen it. Can we talk about you? There are like 20 doctors around be like, you got to go see this dude. Like, yeah, literally they were, they were like, can we talk about you at our next team huddle? And I was like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. And then they left the room and I was like, uh, not feeling confident right now. This is a little awkward. Right. So, uh, over the course of 24 hours, they explain this to me. They give me, I, I get discharged at the end of 24 hours. Right. I have two types of insulin, a basal insulin, a bolus insulin. I have a prescription for syringes, for test strips, for a blood glucose meter, a carbohydrate counting guide. And they basically were like, um, good luck. And I was like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. I don't understand what is happening here, right? So long story short, I basically did a low carbohydrate diet because that's what the sort of like general medical world was telling you at that time. And they're still telling people the same thing now. So I was like, all right, I can do meat, cheese, chicken, fish, oil, peanut butter, turkey burgers, fine. I'm totally into it. Let's do it. So I started eating a lot of those foods. It was the promise was that my glucose was supposed to become more controllable and my insulin use would go down. Well, guess what happened? My insulin use went up and my blood glucose became more uncontrollable. So I was like, listen, I think I'm following directions. I'm trying to do this as, as, as diligently as possible. But in addition to having very strange blood glucose, my muscles started to hurt. And I was like, oh, hell no. I'm an athlete. Like I love playing soccer. I love going to the gym. I love lifting weights. Like you cannot take that stuff away from me, period, end of story. So when I started to feel the, the physical pain of it, I was like, I got to change everything right here and right now. So as a result of that, I switched over to eating a plant-based diet. I wasn't looking for it. I just stumbled across it. Some guy talked to some guy who talked to some guy who put me in contact with some dude named Doug Graham, who happened to be very knowledgeable about teaching people how to eat a plant-based diet. And I went to his sports camp. So I show up at a sports camp and over the course of seven days, he transitions me to a fully plant-based diet where I am without question eating piles. I kid you not piles of bananas and mangoes. And I was like, I think I like this very tasty. And what I expected was that my blood glucose would go through the roof because that's what the traditional diabetes world tells you, right? Right. You eat more carbohydrate. Good luck. Your glucose is going to go way up and your insulin use is going to go way up. So I was fully expecting that. But what happened was that I would eat a bunch of this fruit and my blood glucose came down very quickly, like so quickly that I had to start backing off on the amount of insulin I gave myself. So I went from like 45 units a day to 40 to 37 to 36 to 31 to 27. And before I knew it, after a week, I was at like 25 units of insulin. So just like Robbie was saying, I wasn't playing the carbohydrate avoidance game to lower my insulin use. I was playing the eat as much carbohydrate as you possibly can game. And my insulin use was going down. So I was like, this is, this is fascinating. So I put myself back to graduate school a couple of years later. And I was like, I want to go study this stuff. So I went to UC Berkeley. I studied there for five years to get a PhD. Is that a a good school too? Yeah. It's also in Alabama. So it's it's a little bit closer. (laughs) No offense to anybody in Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) And while I was there, I was, um, I was given the task of, of learning the ins and outs of diabetes. Like what causes 
insulin resistance was like the main question I was trying to answer. Yeah. So I would, you know, using laboratory mice and rats, we basically induced uh, insulin resistance in them and then tried to rescue their insulin sensitivity using either calorie restriction or intermittent fasting or some type of movement. And we learned a, a ridiculous amount of stuff about, you know, how to create and how to reverse insulin resistance. And um, while I was at grad school for five years, I also learned that what I had experienced in my body, which was, you know, an increased ability to consume a ridiculous amount of carbohydrate for less insulin was something that had already been described in the medical literature since literally 1920. So we're talking 100 years of scientific evidence that clearly describes the, the isolated biological phenomenon and then experiments that are happening inside of small groups of people, inside of larger groups of people, uh, inside of people who are living with hypertension and diabetes, people who are overweight, people who don't calorie restrict, you name it. And the, the story that had been created over the past hundred years was, was, was brilliant. And I was like, wait a minute, you're telling me that the scientific world knows how to create and reverse insulin resistance using a predominantly plant-based diet, using a low fat approach. But yet what the public does is the exact opposite. The public eats a low carbohydrate diet, a ketogenic diet, a paleo diet, thinking that that's the solution to diabetes, but yet the rate of diabetes you know, pre-diabetes and type two in this country is going up at like a parabolic rate. So something about this didn't make sense to me. Long story short, Robbie and I ended up meeting each other somewhere along the way. And we were like, Hey, you want to go tell real people how they can switch over to their diet to, you know, more plant-based foods and get ridiculous results. And, you know, hence mastering diabetes was born. And, you know, we've helped over the course of the last five years or so we've helped. I don't even know how to quantify at this point over a hundred thousand people. Wow. I mean, congratulations. That is no small feat. Thank you. Thank you. It's been fun. <laughs> I got it. Oh, man, that was good. That's good. Boom. That's good. I, 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 all right. That, uh, that, he was that sitting was on that for like the past five minutes, man. <laughs> just, that was impressive. It came to me. I've had dad jokes before I was a dad, but now that I'm a dad, man, I can just knock it out. Yeah. Um, and Joey, just so you know, Cyrus's title in the book is the PhD super nerd college professor. There it is. There it is. <laughs> All right. I, I was looking for it, skimming through it, but I also wanted to pay attention because apparently this is my podcast. So I wanted to hear what. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So why, why are people so concerned uh, about insulin resistance? Let's just give a little definition about that. And then we can get into the, um, you know, the weeds and the plants of things here. Love it. All right. So here's the deal. Insulin resistance is generally thought of as basically being the, the, the cause of prediabetes and type two diabetes, but it is so much more than that. Okay. Yes. It's a true statement that if you develop insulin resistance, you can develop prediabetes, which can turn into type two diabetes. There's no question about that, but beyond any flavor of diabetes, insulin resistance is a gateway to chronic disease. Okay. So if you look in the literature and you do a bunch of reading because you got nothing better to do with your life, but confuse yourself. What you'll find is that insulin resistance can influence almost every chronic condition that we know about. And these chronic conditions include many versions of heart disease, whether it's high triglycerides, whether it's high cholesterol, whether it's atherosclerosis, whether it's coronary artery disease. Okay. It can also influence cancer. The more insulin resistant you become, the higher your risk for many forms of cancer. It can also influence your, uh, your risk for developing obesity because mm. there's a very strong connection between insulin resistance and weight gain and or insulin resistance and obesity. 
And then in addition to that, insulin resistance is also connected to many other what are considered like inevitable consequences of living with diabetes. You hear this all the time. You go to the doctor and they're like, oh, hey, Cyrus, you're living with type one. By the way, you should just subtract 10 years from your life. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And they were like, yeah, when you live with type one diabetes, your life expectancy will go down by approximately 10 years. And I was like, why? And they were like, well, because you, you, some, some inevitable consequences will set in at some point. And I was, and I was like, which consequences? And they were like, well, it'll either be peripheral neuropathy, which is, you know, nerve tingling mm -hmm. or nerve damage that causes tingling in your fingers and feet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> number two, um, you can also get chronic kidney disease. You can also get cognitive decline. Like we talked about earlier, you can also get, um, erectile dysfunction, um, and you can also um, develop fatty liver disease. I think they should have led with erectile dysfunction. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you, if you want to fix anybody and you say, you're not going to get a boner anymore. I, I, I think most people, most dudes are just going to be like, all right, what do I need to do? Yeah, exactly. As you, I, you saw the movie, The Game Changers. Uh -huh. Yeah, exactly. It was like, that's the scene that everybody talks about is that, you know, you eat a plant-based meal and all of a sudden you can have an erection for a longer period of time and you stay harder longer, which is awesome. <laughs> you know, who doesn't want that, right? <laughs> Rick James, eat your heart out. <laughs> <laughs> so the point being is that, you know, insulin resistance is a gateway. The more insulin resistant you become, the, the higher your risk for many chronic diseases. And as a result of that, if you can control and or reverse insulin resistance, then what you're doing is you're simultaneously lowering your risk for so many chronic diseases at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a, it's like, you can think of it as being like one of the most powerful drugs ever invented, right? I can give you a plant-based diet prescription, and then I can lower your risk for so many different chronic diseases that it's truly one of the more powerful things that the scientific world has ever discovered. Yeah. Right. That, I mean, that, that, that's pretty cool. But hey, here's the thing. When, when, you, when you're talking to people, they say, okay, obviously low carbohydrate, maybe we increase the fat because the, the fat's not going to, and this is you know, what people are commonly thinking. And I want you to obviously correct me, but a low carbohydrate, we can have high fat. We're not going to spike the insulin level. We can have butter in our coffee and MCT and all that sort of stuff. And we can stay in a fasted state. And I know you guys touch on fasting, so I want to get into that too. Um, but you're also saying, okay, stay away from the fat, but have high carbohydrates. And you both are two lean guys as well. And when people also think diabetes, I mean, let's face it. Most of the time people are thinking like 300 pounds and, or my 600 pound life and they're walking around, they can't right. do anything. And, and they did this to themselves. So, I mean, what's the rebuttal to that? Because I mean, I, I imagine there's something to do with when you guys were talking about, you know, insulin resistance and sensitivity and, um, being metabolically flexible, like Robbie, you, you probably touched on that kind of a little bit too. So yep. what's the, the fat and low carbohydrate argument there? Yeah, perfect. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm glad that you talked about metabolic flexibility because that was literally the thing that I was going to say. So if you play the carbohydrate avoidance game, like Robbie had alluded to earlier, or if you're doing the paleo or ketogenic thing where you're basically saying, listen, I'm going to lower my total carbohydrate intake to like 30 grams per day. Yeah. And as a result of that, I'm going to lower my requirement for insulin if I'm injecting it, or I'm going to lower the amount of insulin that my pancreas is secreting. Okay. Both of them will work. So your, your insulin exposure goes down as a result of lowering your total carbohydrate intake. It's perfectly well-described biology. Okay. So it's easy to believe 
that if that's the case and your A1C comes down and your fasting blood glucose comes down and your post-meal blood glucose comes down and your glucose variability comes down, well, that means I'm more insulin sensitive, right? But the truth is that you, the only way to measure insulin sensitivity is to use a glucose challenge, okay? So researchers know this very well. There's, there's many ways that you can actually measure quantitatively how insulin sensitive someone is. But every single one of these laboratory tests requires administering glucose. You either have to put glucose into someone's mouth or you have to put glucose IV directly into their blood. And then you can do a bunch of different experiments to try and determine uh, how much insulin they require for that glucose, right? So if you're playing the carbohydrate avoidance game, what else, what you'll, what you'll conclude is you're like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm injecting less insulin. Therefore, you know, my, I'm more insulin sensitive. But the truth is that at the moment you start to give yourself what's called a glucose challenge, right? And a glucose challenge is um, what you would administer if you're doing an oral glucose tolerance test. Then at that moment, you can truly test your insulin sensitivity. So what people in the low carbohydrate world do is they avoid carbohydrates like the plague, they eat 30 grams of net carbohydrate or less per day, and they never directly test their insulin sensitivity using a glucose challenge. So devoid of that information, they're making an erroneous conclusion. But if you took a hundred people who are following a ketogenic diet and you put them into a scientific study and you were like, Hey, we're going to give you an oral glucose tolerance test where we're literally going to give you 75 grams worth of glucose in water. And then we're going to measure what your blood glucose does over the course of the next two hours. And you're going to measure how much insulin you secrete over the next two hours. Most of them, a high proportion of those people would experience a very high peak blood glucose of something like 180, 190, maybe even 200 or more. And you would also notice that their insulin secretion significantly increases way beyond what they would expect in the fasting state, right? So my point is that if you directly test insulin sensitivity the way that it's supposed to be tested, you will find that in the low carbohydrate regimen that you're consuming, you're not insulin sensitive at all. But on the flip side, if you eat a low fat plant-based whole food diet, then what you'll find is that you're, you're going to be using a little bit more insulin on a daily basis, but the ratio of carbohydrate to insulin, which is really what your true measurement of insulin sensitivity is, yeah. that goes through the roof. So you take Robbie, you take me, you take anybody else who's eating a low fat plant-based whole food diet properly. You give them an oral glucose tolerance test. And what you'll find is that their peak blood glucose is significantly lower and their peak insulin secretion is significantly lower. And that's a true measurement of insulin sensitivity. So hey, yeah, Joey, just going to do that, right? What's that? Most people aren't going to do that though, right? No. And, and you see this in the low carbohydrate world. They basically say, oh, the oral glucose tolerance test is a bunch of, is, is a joke. Why would I ever do that test? Because it's not physiologically relevant. Mm -hmm. I would never consume 75 grams worth of, of glucose in water. Therefore, what's the point of the test? And my, my point is, I know you're not going to do that under normal circumstances, but it's a scientific test to directly determine the insulin action inside of your liver and muscle. That's the whole point, right? So if you perform it the way that it's supposed to be performed, then you'll actually get out the information you're looking for. Otherwise, if you say, no, this is a dumb test and I don't, and I don't, I don't think it's physiologically relevant, then that's a story you're telling yourself and you, know, you will remain in the insulin resistant state without knowing it. Yeah, fair. Go ahead, Robbie. Yeah, I was just going to add, like, I know, I think this show is about people listening and hearing different options and deciding, hey, you know, what do, what do I want to do? What, what's best for me? And um, yeah, I think, one story I just, I love sharing is one of our clients, Tammy, 
she came to us with an elevated A1C 7.1% using 2000 milligrams of metformin. And she had her fasting insulin tested beforehand. So it was 17.4. And I think your audience knows that's high. Okay. That's a, that's a not good for your fasting insulin. You want it to be below seven. Yeah. So she follows our approach. She starts eating all the carbohydrate foods she wants. She starts moving her body at a reasonable amount, nothing excessive. And in just seven months, she lowers her A1C to 5.3%. She stops taking metformin. So no more diabetes medication. And you got to understand, like when you first come in, you say, hey, my A1C is 7.3% with 2000 milligrams of metformin. That's a medicated A1C. Yeah. Now we're talking about 5.3% with no medication. And her insulin level, her fasting insulin level went down to 5.2. So that is a really good example of how somebody has improved their insulin sensitivity completely addressed the root cause of type two diabetes, reversed it. And in the, in the meantime, she reversed fatty liver disease. She had debilitating knee pain. She couldn't climb a, a pyramid. And then she has like a picture a couple of years later, of like actually going to this place and climbing the pyramid. And she also lost 38 pounds. So that's like an illustration of what happens when you improve your insulin sensitivity. Right. I mean, that's, that's a good point because you said, you know, that's a medicated a1c and i think people are just looking at that and and no offense to doctors but like they've got to see 30 patients in a day so they're only going in and like okay we're treating you with one or two pills a day like you got to get out of here because I, I gotta fill all my quota so i mean this is obviously an issue with western medicine but why are you also plant-based i mean there there's tons of research around that. And I have a ton of, you know, plant-based friends and dietitians that I know that are recommending plant-based, but you guys are specifically saying low fat and plant-based because a lot of people that are, are plant-based are, you know, they're going to be munching on their, their avocado and their cashews and their all sorts of different nut butters and dousing everything in oil. So why are we cutting down the fats too? Okay. So the reason that we're cutting down fat is because uh, if you look in the research, what you'll find is that uh, the, the game that we're, the question that we're trying to understand here, the, the top level question is what makes insulin work well, right? So whatever food and or lifestyle uh, that maximizes the action of insulin, whatever that answer is, that's probably a good thing for life, mm. Right. And again, if you go into the medical literature and you really try and understand like what is, why is insulin sensitivity necessary? The, the point is that insulin sensitivity equals high insulin action, equals insulin is working well, okay? Insulin resistance is the opposite. Insulin resistance equals insulin resistance is not working well. Insulin is inefficient and, in, and that is increasing your risk for chronic disease, okay? So- you, you're not living with diabetes, Joey, um, but still, even in someone like you, your insulin sensitivity matters, right? Right. So you want to become as insulin sensitive as possible for as much of your life as possible. And when you do that, you can decrease your risk for many chronic diseases. So what we have to do is try and figure out what makes insulin work well. And um, in order to answer that question, a simple way to think about it is, well, what makes insulin not work well? What's the exact opposite of insulin sensitivity, right? Are there specific foods? Are there specific components of foods that actually inhibit the action of insulin inside of your liver and muscle? Hmm. So if you go into the literature and you try and understand that question, this is exactly what I had to do when I first began my PhD, right? So my, my professor turned to me and he's like, Cyrus, 
you're going to induce insulin resistance in laboratory mice, right? And I want you to figure out exactly how to get that done. And then we're going to figure out how many mice are in this experiment and what we're going to do. So I went to the literature and I started reading everything I possibly could. And um, I went into it thinking, okay, well, I'm going to create insulin resistance. Therefore, I'm going to probably find papers that tell me that I'm going to feed these animals uh, a lot of sugar or high fructose corn syrup or um, you know, other refined artificial sweeteners, whether it's glucose or fructose. And that's what I was expecting to find. But instead, I found the exact opposite. What I found was we created insulin resistance by feeding a diet high in saturated fat. Hmm. Saturated fat, high lipid, high fat, high fat, high fat, high saturated fat. I kept on seeing this over and over and over again. And I was like, what? You're telling me that by feeding a high fat diet, you actually create insulin resistance. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. So then I delved into it a little bit more and started to tease out the mechanism. And it turns out that when you consume a significant amount of saturated fat, what ends up happening is that that saturated fat um, is locked up in a triglyceride molecule. So the triglyceride molecule is basically a, uh, a, back, a, a glycerol backbone with three fatty acids attached to it. Okay. So the triglyceride mm -hmm. uh, is the form of fat in the food that you eat, whether it's coming from the animal world or whether it's coming from the plant world, okay? That's how most fat is stored. So you consume fat in the form of triglyceride. It travels down your esophagus. It gets inside of your stomach and then inside of your small intestine. Inside of your small intestine, you have a whole, you have a, an enzymatic cocktail um, that's secreted by your liver, by your small intestine and by your pancreas. And the purpose of these enzymes is to basically go and try and try and degrade the food that you've just eaten. So it's trying to degrade uh, carbohydrates into glucose and fructose. It's trying to degrade proteins into amino acids. It's trying to degrade uh, triglycerides into fatty acids. Wow. So these triglyceride molecules end up getting ripped apart. The, 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 the fatty acids end up getting absorbed through the walls of your small intestine. And then they make themselves in, they make their way into these things called chylomicron particles. These chylomicrons are like little spaceships and they kind of float. They're, they're lipoprotein particles that move all throughout your blood. So they're in full circulation and their goal is to deliver these fatty acids to tissues. So the crux of this argument is that if you eat a saturated fat rich meal, the saturated fat ends up in the chylomicron particles. Now, if the chylomicrons were to deliver those saturated fatty acids only to your adipose tissue, your fat tissue, then everything would be fine. That is literally the safest place to, to put fatty acids in your body because it's a tissue that's specifically designed to absorb fatty acids when they're available in your diet, to hold on for them for long periods of time, and then to oxidize them or to export them when the time is right. But what ends up happening is that these fatty acids end up getting inside of your adipose tissue, which is a good thing. And then they also get inside of your liver and muscle. And your liver and muscle are designed to store very small quantities of total fat. And when you're consuming a fat-rich diet, then within a short period of time, the amount of fat that's stored inside of your liver and muscle starts to exceed its biological capacity. So at that moment, these tissues are like, oh gosh, what am I supposed to do? There's too much fatty acids coming in. I never asked for this stuff in the first place. It's, it's exceeding my biological capacity to store it. So you have this net increase in lipid inside of cells in your liver, inside of cells in your muscle. And then as a result of that, these tissues basically say, hold on, let's try and block more energy from coming in. We want to we want to try and block as much fat from coming in. And we also want to try and block as much glucose and amino acids as well, because those are other forms of energy that we don't have a need for anymore. Okay. We're in a sort of like uh, excess fuel state and we're trying to like block as much as we can coming in. So the easiest way that any cell in your body, any tissue in your body can 
prevent more fuel from coming in is to block insulin from signaling to that tissue. Interesting. So if people, you know, that are moving towards a a plant-based diet, I mean, they're used to putting, we always hear all the time, like olive oil, avocado oil, coconut oil, like nuts and seeds and all all that sort of stuff. Is there a, a limited number that you guys are recommending? Like you should stay below a certain amount or just use oil sparingly? Uh, what are the recommendations? I mean, can you generalize on, on what people should be having? Okay, Joey, this is my f- favorite thing in the world to talk about, okay? Uh, we have a simple traffic light system to help people understand what food to put in their body, okay? It's very simple, all right? Very there's nice. green light, there's yellow light, and there's red light. You know what, Joey? I want people to really get a foothold on this, okay? <laughs> Really you, want to make it clear. Were you writing down foot? Were you writing down foot puns when? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to answer your fat question in a second. Okay, but yeah. the green light category has foods that are they're whole foods. They are unrefined, and we suggest that people eat them in large quantities, literally as much as you want. It's almost impossible to overeat the green light foods. So that's fruits potatoes, not potatoes, mangoes, bananas, yeah. uh, papaya lychees, longans, like fruits. Okay. Go to town on fruits. Then you got, um, starches. Okay. So these are starchy vegetables, like potatoes, yams, butternut squash. Then you move into legumes. Okay. So you have all different varieties of legumes. You got lentils in there. We include peas in there. So red lentils, green lentils, go to town on those. Then intact whole grains. Okay. These are foods that are unrefined. So that's going to be millet. That's going to be, we'll put quinoa in that category, brown rice, Farro, <clears throat> intact whole grains. Then you move into non-starchy vegetables. So bell peppers, um, cucumbers, zucchini, then leafy greens, then mushrooms and herbs and spices. All those foods, eat them in abundance. And the first four categories are in a specific order. Fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, intact whole grains. We want people living with diabetes and people who just want more energy yep. to focus on calorie-rich calorie dense whole foods. You got to get your calories somewhere because when people start eating a plant-based diet, they think, oh, it's a bunch of salads and they do that. And all of a sudden they're hungry. They go have something that they ate previously. Maybe they have a cheeseburger. Maybe they have some pizza. All of a sudden they get energy again. Well, it's because you weren't eating enough calories on a plant-based diet where you weren't focusing on those carbohydrate rich whole foods. Because again, a lot of people come to it with the fear of eating those foods, but it's no, no, it's the exact opposite. You want to focus on them. All right. So that's the green light category. Then yellow is where we're going to answer your question. Okay. Yellow light foods. We suggest you eat in a much more conscious quantity. You got to have, bring some, some consciousness here. Like you, you, they're good foods. You just can't eat too many of them. Mm -hmm. All right. So this is, these are plants that are higher in fat or they're just a little more processed. So nuts and seeds, we're going to put avocados in this category, coconut meat, olives, soy products, all they're great foods plenty of evidence-based researching research showing how beneficial they are. They include fiber. They include water content, important nutrients. They're just naturally much higher in fat. And when you eat large quantities of those foods, that is going to cause insulin resistance. No questions asked. We see this again, all the time in our own bodies living with type one, but the thousands of people we've been able to run through this program, we can see that very clearly, very objectively with type one diabetes. And you can see it just as well with type two and their medication increases and their fasting blood glucose increase when you start including more 
high fat plant foods. Okay. So, but then we still have, um, things like bread. Okay. Maybe Ezekiel bread or brown rice pasta or quinoa pasta. Like these things are cool. They're great. They're just a little more processed. Mm -hmm. It's better to have the original whole intact version. All right. And then red light category, this is where we have animal products here, but back to your question, we have oils in the red light category. Okay. Oils, one of the most refined foods on the planet. Okay. You've taken out the water content you've taken out the fiber, you've taken out the carbohydrate, you've taken out the protein, you're essentially left with pure fat. Maybe some of the higher quality oils definitely have some nutrients left in there, but calorically it's pure fat. It's the most calorie dense food on the planet. It's very easy to gain weight when you're including, you know, smaller amounts of oil, a little bit will go a long way. And it is the most problematic food you could possibly eat. I, well, I wouldn't say possibly because there's some foods that are worse, but it's one of the most problematic foods when it comes to insulin resistance because of the, the fat content of oils. And we're talking all oils, coconut oil, olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, avocado oil, it doesn't matter. It's still pure fat with the nutrients taken out. You're far better off eating appropriate quantities of what that food was made of. Okay. Eat some olives, eat some avocado, eat some, some coconut meat on top of your acai bowl. Like have some fun with it but let's focus on whole foods that include the original fiber and all the nutrients intact. That makes sense. And acai is one of my favorite words to say. <laughs> Cyrus loves him some acai bowls. So good. So good. Delicious. All right. So if, if people were wanting to, um, so uh, my mother-in-law and father-in-law are hundred percent Greek, like off the boat, like great accents, love them. Amazing people. Uh -huh. make, uh, she makes uh, I, I got to say that just in case she listens to this. I love it. <laughs> um, so she, she makes, uh, and actually this is an apartment that I rent to do all my like working out and podcasts and stuff. And we're crashing with them until we find a house, but she makes a delicious Briem, which is basically a bunch of root vegetables, tomatoes, and just a big pile of whatever they have of vegetables. And then douses them in olive oil. And then like just puts it in a broil. It's amazing. Sure. I'm sure it but, tastes real good. Oh, it's amazing. What, what would you suggest like to cook something like that? I mean, like, what do you, you guys use to like steam it? What do you do? Yeah. So there's, there's many different ways that you can uh, cook food without using oil. So I'll be the first person to tell you that one of the benefits of using oil is that, you know, if you're cooking root vegetables, you put oil on it, then you stick it in the oven as an example, you're going to get that like crispy texture on the outside, mm -hmm. right? And then when you bite into it, it'll be crispy on the outside and kind of gooey on the inside. And it's just like, it's just pure magic, right? It's delicious. Yes. Yeah. So it's, you can replicate that uh, in the, you know, without the use of oil. Um, but in general, when you're using, when you're cooking without oil, what you end up having to do is use instead of fat rich substances to cook with like butters and oils, you end up using water rich substances. And these can either be like vegetable broth is broths or water or vinegar. So all of those are water-based, right? Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, you end up having more moisture locked up in your food. So it's, it's a little bit harder to get that texture. It's not impossible by any stretch of imagination, right. but as a result of that, you end up going towards things like steaming or boiling or you can even roast things in the oven, um, but you might want to sort of put down, um, you want to put things on parchment paper um, so they don't stick to the underlying surface. Right. And then you have to treat it with like, you know, you can put some kind of vinegar based substance on top of it and get around um, the sort of oil problem. So it's definitely possible to do. Um, one thing, one of the benefits here is that 
when you cook food in a more water rich environment, you'd reduce the formation of these things called AGEs, which are advanced glycation end products, which will make you ugly, which will make you very, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So it'll definitely like, it'll help oxidize your skin. It can, it can create wrinkles. It can also create a significant oxidative stress to your liver, to your kidney, to your blood vessels, to your heart, to your vasculature, to your, your pancreas, you name it. And so if anything you can do to reduce the creation of advanced glycation end products is a good thing. And cooking things in a moisture rich environment is one of the most powerful ways that you can do that. Moisture rich goes inside it goes out that's why i have this beautiful glow and all that's actually a little sunscreen with coconut oil on there (laughs) i smell amazing remember the seinfeld episode where kramer was um trying to cook himself and it was a butter (laughs) (laughs) he he would put butter on himself and then he'd go sunbathe on the roof yeah newman thought he was a turkey Sorry, I, I digress. This this podcast is going all sorts of places here. Uh, so, now, now you guys have a lot of different recommendations in there. One, I, I do want to. I, I feel like I have to touch on this. I know you probably answered answered this a hundred times. I want to go on the protein debate with plants, and then I want to talk a little bit about fasting too. So, people that are looking to are plant based. I know there's 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 protein in all sorts of different plants, but do you have any recommendations for somebody that's maybe trying to put on a little bit more muscle tissue, or as an athlete is trying to recover um, as far as if they're going to yeah. follow your specific plan? Yeah, let me let me throw the question back to you. Um, when you're thinking about your protein intake, um, do you try and eat a certain number of grams per kilogram body weight? Yes. What, what's your target? So generally speaking, I'm around a gram per pound. A gram per pound, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I'm I'm working out multiple times per day. I think most people probably don't need to hit that amount. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm a little bit higher because I do weigh my food and measure things. I've tried all sorts of different diets with podcasts. I, I, I was, I was straight up vegan for several months. I did carnivore. I did keto. I did all sorts. I mean, and I, I'm able to do that just because, you know, I, I'm, I'm young and, and active. Um, mm-hmm. I think arguably speaking, I felt the best people are going to, they're, they're going to hate me when I say this, when I was predominantly plant-based. Okay. Felt the best. Describe it. What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, well, here, here's one thing. Uh, I did a podcast with um, Juliana Hever, who was a co-host of, uh, I don't know, you know her plant-based dietitian. She's brilliant. Um, she wrote like the idiot's guide to plant-based eating, all sorts of things. So, yeah. but um, I did a, a, a Facebook show with her uh, called Home Sweat Home. And that was back when I was like, we were in Manhattan filming for two weeks and I was eating like meat sticks and your typical like bodybuilder type stuff right i was like oh i could only do this i don't have carbs like give me a slim gym it wasn't a slim gym it was some, something you know along those lines she's like joey you need to you need to eat more plants eat some more green things it's like oh fine whatever i'll try it out right so then i in a manhattan fortunately enough there's a lot of like these places that you can go and just, like get some brussels sprouts and whatever so i started doing that and started incorporating that and more i said all right let me do this whole plant-based thing went three months plant-based i was vegan, gluten-free, soy-free, like, and that's pretty much what I did. Uh, my A1C dropped. I, I did the blood work. It was down below five. My testosterone went up, which interesting, which makes, makes sense, right? I mean, less inflammatory foods, probably more conducive for that. I was probably sleeping better. Um, I was moving around quite better. Uh, joints weren't, I don't know if the joint was because of the inflammation, getting better probably, but I've been lifting really heavy lately, just putting on some size. So it's kind of one of those things where 
chicken or the egg. Um, but I did have a good amount of energy. My, my sleep was pretty good. And ever since then I've been tackling like a lot more vegetables. Like there's a day where I don't have a massive salad or a bunch of greens and do that. So I've incorporated a lot of that, um, from doing that. So yeah, that's how I felt better. There's, there's your answer. Okay. So let me ask you this. Uh, did you notice that when you were eating a plant-based diet that your recovery was faster per chance? You know, I feel like, I feel like it was. And at the time, what was I doing? I was, I was training full-time. So I'd have 12 to 14 clients per day. And I think the one thing that I was trying to do with the plant-based thing is a lot of people like you can eat plant-based and eat uh, Oreo cookies all day long, right? Like you can do all sorts of different things. So um, I was trying not to get it by way of doing shakes and smoothies all day. So I was having a ton of, ton of asparagus, like bunches of bunches of asparagus. Cause that's one thing that I felt like I just put, you know, some salt and pepper on. It was pretty delicious to me. I was having a lot of beans, a lot of lentils, uh, a lot of kale, a lot of spinach and a ton of fruit, which my wife was like, Oh my God, you're having carbs. Are you Okay. Because you know, I was the dude, right. I mean, I'm two, I'm 210 pounds right now and six, three. Um, I know I look amazing, so it's okay. You don't need to, talk. <laughs> so, but I was, I was having this, I'm like, a bowl of berries and all, I still, I wasn't having the breads or the chips, but I was having all this fruit and I was feeling much better. So all of these things I've still incorporated in my life, unless I'm specifically doing something for the podcast where I'm doing like, you know, some other specific diet, which is harder for me to do because I'm like, I crave having the berries. I, I crave having like a, a grapefruit or a, or a smoothie or something along those lines. So yeah, that, that's sure. my, that's my plant-based story for you. Okay. So is there anything stopping you from eating more fruit right now in your, in your daily life? Nah, no, it's not like you're trying to eat a low carbohydrate diet for any reason. No, like, you know, may, maybe, you know, if I'm getting ready for a shoot or something, I might cut down do a little uh, carb depletion and carb load honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe pl- mess with my sodium a little bit more bodybuilder type style, but I don't recommend that to pretty much anybody. Got it. Um, but I know my body enough and I've done fitness competitions where I know that within five or six days, I can drop like 10 pounds, like real quick, but then I'll load back up and then I'll kind of reverse diet back. Got it. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Okay. So your original question was what's the deal with protein and you know, how can you get protein on a plant-based diet? So the truth is that it's actually quite easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's sort of like a lot of folklore in the world of, uh, you know, plant-based diets that it's going to either make you protein deficient mm-hmm. or that something's going to happen and it's going to, you know, you're going to develop either muscle wasting or like osteoporosis, or you're going to end up with like lower bone mineral density and all this. Sarcopenic obesity, right? Is what a word that they throw around. Exactly. So, um, the truth is that, okay, here's what I recommend. Um, for somebody who's an active athlete like you, right? Somebody who is training, uh, resistance training in particular, mm-hmm. what I would recommend is somewhere on the order of about 1.6 grams per kilogram. So I know that's less than what you're currently eating right now. Is that, but, full, is that full body weight or lean body mass? Uh, that's actually full body weight, but let's, so let's do the calculation here real quick. Give me your, your body weight right now is 210? 210, yeah. Okay, 210 divided by 2.2. Uh, times 1.6 would put us at 152 grams of protein per day. And currently, how many are you eating? Um, probably right around 200 sometimes. Right, right. 50, yeah. Honestly. Okay, cool. So you're basically at like one gram per, per pound, like you are saying. Yeah. Okay, so my recommendation would be to eat uh, 1.6 grams per kilogram total body mass. Okay. Um, now, 
if you are not a seriously active individual, you're not as athletic, then I would recommend bringing that down to somewhere like 1.2 or even one. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's true that people who are older than 65 end up with a slightly higher protein requirement. And so for those individuals, they're probably going to want to go back up to somewhere around 1.2. But, you know, for your average individual who's like moderately active, um, eating, you know, call it 1.0 gram per kilogram, um, 1.0 gram of protein per kilogram body weight is, is perfectly sufficient. So let's take your average individual. Let's say you're, you're 180 pound male. Okay. What you do is you take 180 divided by, by you divide that by 2.2 to give you their body weight in kilograms. And that number is 81. And then you multiply that times one. Okay. So that would mean that your, your, my recommendation would be to consume somewhere around 80 grams of protein per day. If you wanted to increase that and go to 1.2 grams per kilogram, by all means, that's totally fine. So if we did that, the number would be closer to about 100. So my prescription would be find a way to get between 80 and 100 grams of protein into your body on a daily basis. No questions asked. So the next question is, okay, fine. Well, where do you find that? How do you do that? So there's the truth is, is that when you're eating a wide selection of plants, you can get small amounts of protein from, you know, a whole collection of food. So bananas have protein. Um, Peaches have protein, lettuce has protein, right? But the truth is that the contribution of protein from each one of those foods that are not objectively protein-rich foods is going to be relatively small. It'll be like 6% of your total calories, which is not enough. It's not going to get you to those numbers. So instead of doing that, what I would recommend doing is eating more protein-rich foods that come from legumes. So beans, peas, and lentils. Any of the legume variety is fantastic. Uh, I happen to be a chickpea freaking fanatic. I love chickpeas. And I do want to give you a quick answer on this. What do you think about oxalates and anti-nutrients and having to cook things in pressure cookers? Yeah, exactly. So um, your question is what, is it necessary to cook in a pressure cooker? Yes. Um, To the best of my knowledge, the answer is no. So like if you took uh, black beans as an example or chickpeas, right? You could pressure cook them and it'll cook them faster. And in theory, it's supposed to reduce the oxalate content and the anti-nutrient content. And as a result of that, it's going to be more digestible, less inflammatory, right? right? But even if you didn't cook them in a pressure cooker, I don't know if there's a significant scientific evidence. I, at least I haven't read it. I've seen like a small, small, it was like, I don't know, don't call me on, it was like four or 6% maybe out of the, the total amount of um, nutrient density and that that might cause something. But like most people, I, I haven't really noticed a huge difference with people that like, having like 15 almonds instead of 12 or don't soak in their nuts or right. <laughs> I, I laugh every time I say soak the nuts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> carry on. Yeah. So point is if you want to pressure cook them by all means, you have, you can, but you don't necessarily have to. Right. Um, so again, eating legumes, beans, peas, or lentils, any version of bean, any color of pea, any version of lentil, by all means you have one cup. A simple way to think about it is one cup of legumes gives you approximately 15 grams of protein. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you have two cups per day, that's 30 grams of protein right there. That's one third of the total protein that's required for the day. Okay. For a 180 pound male, as an example. Okay. And then in addition to that, you can also consume things like quinoa. That's relatively protein rich. Okay. Whole grains tend to have a significant protein content as well. Right. And then again, you'd have the contribution of other fruits of um, starchy vegetables. And then if you put the whole thing together and you do some math and you put your food into chronometer or another diet logging tool, what I find and what a lot of our clients find is that they meet their, their protein requirements much easier than they suspect. Yeah. They're sort of like, oh my God, it's going to be really hard to get the protein. But in reality, if you just use a diet logging tool, you'll find that you're meeting your protein requirements and beyond. It's, it's actually not that hard. It's pretty easy when you're looking at that. I think a bunch of asparagus, depending on like 12 to 15 grams. And you know, I think people that 
uh, originally veganism, plant-based, whatever terminology, plant-forward eating that you, you want to give it. I think people were really concerned about that. What's your viewpoint? Sure. Red light, green light, yellow light, orange light, mango light um, on um, protein powders like pea-based, plant, uh, brown rice-based, anything? Yeah. So I put those in the, in the green light category personally. I think we put them, Robbie, we put them in the yellow light category perhaps as a, as a general rule of thumb? Technically yellow, yes. Sure. Which just means cognizant of being how much you're consuming. The, the core teaching point behind green light is literally eat as much as you want. Your body's naturally going to tell you you've had enough. It's just so much water, so much fiber. So anything that's refined goes into the yellow light category just to start having a conversation. Okay. How much of this should I really be having? Right. And you're, and you're looking at the quality and the quality. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, yellow light doesn't mean it's bad. Right. Like, oh, that's a terrible food. It's no, like, let's just be cognizant of how much we're consuming and be thoughtful about it. Okay. Fair. Cool. So what, you know, why do you guys recommend, uh, there's a uh, fasting components in there too. Oh yeah. Fasting. Fasting is so rad. Okay. So when I was in graduate school, I basically studied fasting for five years to try and determine whether that was an effective insulin sensitivity recovery tool. Mm. Okay, for mice and rats that we had created insulin resistance in. And the answer was uh, in intermittent fasting is so powerful at rescuing insulin sensitivity. It's mind boggling. It's way more powerful than I thought. Right. But beyond that, as you know, intermittent fasting has become one of the most popular dietary trends on the planet. And it, actually, I didn't think it was going to catch on as much as it did, but it did. Right. So intermittent fasting is a phenomenal weight loss tool. It's a phenomenal tool to actually like reset your relationship with food and teach you your actual biological hunger signals, as opposed to your like social hunger signals that happen every single time, you know, it's, it's mealtime or because you smell pizza as an example, right? So it's a simple way for you to determine when you're actually biologically hungry. You can kind of feel and sense the hunger that's coming from your actual muscle tissue, as opposed to the hunger that is coming from your brain. Um, and what we do is we teach people living with all forms of diabetes and heart disease, how they can use intermittent fasting as a tool, as one of the tools in their, in their arsenal to gain insulin sensitivity, lower their body weight and reset their relationship with food. And when they do that, they find that they actually are able to lower their A1C values, lower their cholesterol values, lower their triglyceride values and achieve much more ideal, uh, biomarkers for both cardiovascular and diabetes health within a much shorter period of time than they had anticipated. Nice. Is there a, you, you guys like a 12, 14, 16, 18 hour, what, what's the, what's the time restricted feeding window that you prefer? We recommend 16, eight. That's what I've found to be like, kind of like the magic tipping point. Okay. Uh, what do you intermittent fast yourself? I do. I do. Um, most days I do intermittent fasting. I even did a five day fast one time for the podcast to try it. Uh, day one was fine. Day two was kind of horrible. Day three, <laughs> suck balls um day four and day five I, I felt actually pretty good but then i then i when i broke broke the fast where most people like go to ihop or something like i just, i had like a kale lemon drizzle salad like just to kind of slowly get my digestive system back into things but every now and then i'll do a 24-hour fast maybe once every few months but yeah. yeah daily is generally i stop eating around seven and my first meal is around 11 o'clock i will have a coffee for a workout yeah. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm right about that 16 hour every now and like if I'm up, um, on the weekend and my son is having breakfast, I just kind of like want to eat with him, you know, just for like a, you know, a bonding thing, but yeah, most of the time, 16, eight. Yeah. Most of the time, 16, eight. Okay. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's actually like one of the more sustainable ways to go about the intermittent fasting game, mm -hmm. because a lot of times when people try and do a 24 hour intermittent fast, like it can be pretty rugged, Yeah, you know, like that 16 to 24 hour 
window of time where you're just like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm very hungry and I'm a little hangry and people don't want to be around me. Right. Yeah. So if you can kind of like get into a mode of doing a 16, eight on a daily basis, like it may suck for the first week, yeah. but once you get into it, it's actually not that big of a deal. And it's, it's interesting how your brain and our digestive system who are talking to each other 24 hours a day, um, end up, you know, be developing a new sort of equilibrium at which point, you know, the meal that you're no longer eating, you just, you don't even generate a hunger signal at that time. And as a result of that, you're like, cool, I used to be hungry in the morning. I'm not even hungry in the morning. I don't think about food and everything's fine. Yeah. I mean, for me, getting that workout in, in the morning, one mentally, I struggle, I struggle with depression. So getting the work at some sort of movement in the morning and getting some light and all that sort of stuff is very good. But at coffee about an hour, hour and a half after I wake up, not to like, you know, right, right away as an alarm. And then I get that workout in. And then, and you know, by then it's almost 11 o'clock and being able to have that meal. And I like eating big meals. So I like the, the fasting aspect of it. Like, everything I eat is basically out of a bowl, like a big ass bowl, Yeah, one, you know, once or twice a day. And just like, it's like a half an hour, you know, marathon session. I just, I feel good about it. All right, guys, I got, I got one more question for both of you. Robbie, where do you feel the future um, of health and wellness is heading? You know, I think the future of health and wellness is, unfortunately, I think it's heading towards more and more technology. I think that's the truth. Um, and I think I'm like, again, like I'm super pumped that you are like using levels and what they're doing, but like, it's part of what the conversation we're trying to bring to the table here, which I hope, you know, people kind of get curious to read our book and learn more about what we're doing is that there is a a fixation on data. And sometimes it's too much data and it's too confusing. So you got people now who are using these CGMs who think, oh my gosh, I ate fruit. My blood glucose went to 120, 125 and it came, you know, came back down, but that's bad. Right. It should have been a flat line. It should have never gone above hundred. So you have all this data, you have people getting more and more confused. And it's like, what we do at Mastering Diabetes is teach people like, look, no, 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 no. Understand the principles, look at the research, Understanding like fundamentally what to eat, what not to eat is not that complicated. Like just do that and go live your life and focus on the things you're passionate about. And don't, like, if you don't have diabetes, I honestly don't think people should be using a CGM. I wear a CGM because it improves my quality of life. I don't have to prick myself all day. Right. But like this technology stuff, I think it's ridiculous. But anyways, that's where it's headed. And it's kind of job security for Cyrus and I to have stuff to talk about and educate people. But uh, yeah, there you go. So I hope that uh, it's that and a lot more fruit. That's my hope. All right, nice. Cyrus, if people wanted to uh, take your principles, what's the easiest way for them to start if they were full on standard American diet, beige and fried and everything else? What, what's the first thing they can do? Okay. Easiest thing. I love this question. The easiest thing to do is literally start eating fruit for breakfast. It's just that simple. So we teach people to change their diet from wherever they start, whether it's a standard American diet, a ketogenic diet, or a, you know, an omnivorous diet and move to a fully plant-based diet um, over the course of time. Like, I don't even care how long it takes. Like, I'm not encouraging people to try and do this in a week. Mm -hmm. I would actually prefer that people take three months to do it because it's a, it's a marathon and it's a, uh, it gives you the ability to make small changes and then ask yourself a question at all times. How does this change affect me? Is it positive? Is it negative? And how can I tweak my lifestyle so that it's more optimal, right? So the smallest thing that you can do tomorrow to make your life to sort of move in, in the direction that we're suggesting 
is to uh, eat a breakfast that contains your favorite fruits. Take three, four, five fruits, put them into a bowl, cut them up, and enjoy it. And when we teach people how to make this like one simple change, people, people's minds are blown. They're blown at number one, how tasty it is. Number two, the fact that they actually get like a nice sweet flavor first thing in the morning, which helps with like sugar cravings later in the day. Uh, number three, how energetic they feel after eating that bowl. And number four, how full they are. And so if you can just sort of like make that change and just do that literally for a week and do nothing else, at that point, you can then start to, you know, make your lunch more plant-based and then step all, you know, through, make your dinner more plant-based on week three and beyond. But just for one week, eat a, at a fruit-based breakfast and report back and let me know how you feel. Amazing. So my fruity pebbles as a kid, that didn't serve well. <laughs> Man, I love that cereal back in right? the day. Yeah, like my when I say that, my teeth just start hurting because mm -hmm. it's fruity pebbles or cocoa pebbles. Sometimes I mix the both, uh -huh. and then I would drink the milk and oh yeah, straight sugar. Totally. Man, what what an asshole I was. Uh, <laughs> was that your favorite cereal growing up? I mean, anything. Like, dude, I was like, I grew up in Wisconsin for you know, Appleton, Wisconsin, close to Green Bay, but you know, um, good people, but they don't eat yeah. well. So uh, yeah, everything was with cheese or fried or whatever. And then my family was from Southern Missouri. So yeah, yeah it was like the Crisco, everything was fried. It was totally, like, if you had asparagus, it was fried. Like they, they thought it was good for you. So for sure. Uh, fellow, man, I feel like, sorry, go ahead, go I ahead. feel like food manufacturers in the nineties, they really crushed the cereal game, man. It was so yeah. good. Yes. It's, so good. it's <laughs> it was delicious, but it was like 75% sugar. If not totally, totally. All right, guys, where, where can people find you at? Okay. The hey, best go. place. Well, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you're so Well, there's a lot of different places. So we do have a podcast, Joey, so okay. people can check us out. Type in mastering diabetes into any podcast platform and you'll find us. So, uh, we're on YouTube as well. Type in mastering diabetes into YouTube active on Instagram at mastering diabetes. Look out for some TikTok content coming soon, Joey. Oh man. Look at, we, we do exist on TikTok right now. I'm not that active. Um, I'm we have eight followers. Followers. It's awesome. <laughs> what's that? I said, we have eight followers. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, exactly, Very dedicated. Exactly. Totally. We're on fire. I'll, I'll try um, to make you nine. There, there you go. we go. There we go. That's huge. Um, Let's see. You can get the book anywhere. You can buy books. Amazon's probably the easiest place to get it. We read our own book, which you can download from Audible or Google Play, anywhere you get your uh, audio books. And that's actually free. Like if you have, if you've never opened up an Audible account, just open one up, you get your first book for free. That's great. You can get the book at any library. Um, and our website. So if you go to our website, you can go to the homepage in the upper right corner. You can take a quiz. So it's masteringdiabetes.org and you can find out if you are insulin resistant and uh, just answer a couple questions. We have a lot of blogs there, a lot of recipes, new recipe coming out every week, new article coming out every week. So a lot of content to uh, help people really understand the true, true cause of insulin resistance and how to reverse it. Perfect, fellas. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Remember, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. <sighs> yeah, best oh, that's good. tagline That's good. Ever. I'm Joey Thurman. Thanks, fellas. Check out Mastering Diabetes. Uh, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. Cheers. Wow. I know I learned a lot in that episode, as I do with pretty much all of my episodes. 
Maybe I'll have more carbs. Mmm. Carbs. But the good carbs that they talked about, right? Red light, yellow light, green light. Sometimes I feel like I'm talking to my child when I do these podcasts, but it's good, right? If you can explain something to a three, four, five-year-old and they can understand it, maybe we'd be much better off speaking to each other that way, right? Next week on the podcast, I have Alex Wish. Alex is a performance specialist, angel investor. He's done all sorts of feats of strength where he did 6,000, 7,000, 10,000 reps, all sorts of crazy things, all for mental health. Why? Because he struggles with depression himself. And he's tried every single thing out there from medications to ketamine therapy to all sorts of stuff. So next week on the podcast, I have Alex Wish, and we talk about the future of treating mental health disorders, what he's done, and maybe what you can do. You don't want to miss the next episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. Remember, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. Please subscribe, share, follow me on social at Joey Thurman Fit. Cheers, be well, and here's to your health.